Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. How many, if I say the, the name Miracle Max, how many of you know who I'm talking about? Miracle Max. Okay, this is a quote from Miracle Max. <clears throat> Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world. Except, except maybe for a nice MLT, a mutton lettuce tomato sandwich where the mutton is nice and lean and the tomato is ripe. They're so perky. I love that. As Miracle Max declares, there's nothing better than true love except perhaps a great sandwich. Perhaps, though, a sandwich can be true love. And true love, a sandwich. Let me explain. No, it is too much. Let me sum up. Sorry, that's that's from the movie. Okay. Um, whenever I have something uh, meaty or, or, or difficult to explain to someone, I always like to deliver what I call a sandwich, right? Interspersing it with the bread of affirmation and compassion. I also love it when I receive a sandwich, like when my wife uh, says, and this is a hypothetical situation, uh, I appreciate you taking initiative with the mess in the kitchen. Next time, make sure you check underneath the big pan to wash off all the soap. Thanks for doing the dishes. You see that? So, you know, my wife is from New Jersey, though, so they tend to tell it like it is up there. So sometimes I'm fortunate enough to get, you know, a, an open face sandwich, but, but hey, it's something. I know not everyone appreciates, you know, a nice verbal sandwich like this. Uh, I can think of uh, Mary Haller, for example. Uh, whenever I'm trying to be diplomatic and encouraging and give her a sandwich, she's like, David, don't give me a sandwich. Just tell me what you need to tell me. All right? You know, perhaps this is also because she's from the north, or maybe it's because she's on the paleo diet, and, you know, they don't... They don't have bread in that, um, but uh, you know, to each their own. But for me, as for me, this is my uh, favorite uh, kind of uh, sandwich. It's a it's a love language, and uh, it's uh, like a verbal hug, you know, of affirmation and encouragement. This week's Parsha, Kitisa, contains the episode where Aaron gives in to the people's grumbling and impatience, and what does he do? He forms a golden calf for Israel to worship, okay? Admittedly, this is bad, okay? The sages traditionally connect the covenant at Sinai to what? To a marriage, right, between God and Israel. With the Torah, what, would, what do you think the Torah would be in this case if it's a marriage? The Torah would be like the ketubah, right, or the Ten Commandments would be like the wedding, uh, the wedding uh, document, the marriage document. In this analogy, what happens here by building the, the the forming the golden calf? It's like cheating on your spouse on the wedding night, right? They just got the Ten Commandments, right, and uh, here they are. Some sages also point to this story as uh, similar to the rebellion in the garden. 
right? When Adam and Eve ate the fruit and they brought sin and death and chaos into God's good world. This is very, very bad what we did. The first century Jewish historian, Josephus, when he tells the Sinai story, guess what? He leaves this out. He just doesn't tell it, maybe for fear of anti-Semitism, but it's, it's a very difficult episode. It's challenging. But look at the surrounding narrative context of this. What is it? It's a giant tabernacle sandwich. Mmm, yum, yum. Before this incident, what do you have? Page after page of instruction for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And then you have golden calf. And then you have after that, what? Page after page of the actual construction of it. The first grand gesture of God dwelling in Israel surrounds this debacle like a giant hug of affirmation, right? There are also links to the sandwich-like love of God in the story itself. Uh, Aaron appeases the people uh, when they're impatient. And this is what he says. Have your wives, sons, and daughters strip off their gold earrings, right, and bring them to me. You have gold and you have earrings. What, what is he using this for? To build the golden calf, right? This is the, what happens in, the, in, the, uh, in this Parsha. All right, but the same words for gold and earrings, Zahav and Nezem, are used in next week's Parsha for the offering to build the tabernacle. And I think the biblical writers put that in there for us to make those links. They're like hyperlinks, right? If you've ever been on the, the World Wide Web, have you heard of this thing, Lloyd? Yes, the World Wide Web. You click a hyperlink and it takes you to another, another link, right, with that word. And I think a lot of Hebrew words are, are built into the Bible that way. You know what I'm saying? You tracking with me? Okay, all right. Um, so where was I? Okay, so we have a hyperlink here. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the sacred garments. All who, who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings and ornaments. That's from Exodus 35. So in this case, we see the redemptive opposite of the golden calf blunder. Folks contributing from the same gold earrings to build a tabernacle so, so that what? So God can dwell among Israel, right? With his people. Instead of melting them to build an idol, they're melting them to build the vehicle for God's presence among and within them. Isn't that beautiful? The same word for gold and a similar word for a uh, Hebrew word for ring are used later in the actual construction and uh, uh, instruction for the tabernacle. What, what is a, a gold ring used for in, the, in their tabernacle? Do you know? It holds up the, the curtains, right? The, 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 there's rods and there's curtains. This too, I think, is a callback to the golden calf, but in a restorative way. So the very thing that was used for idolatry is now used to draw them near to God and for God to draw near to them. Furthermore, the presence of the tabernacle sandwich indicates that God's response to our rebellion is actually the opposite of what we expect. 
and the opposite of what we deserve. When we fail, God draws near. It's amazing. When the first humans eat the forbidden fruit, how does God respond? He responds by pursuing them. He asks Adam, where are you? Right? He pursues him. And then what does he do? He covers them up with animal skins. So how do we act when we're hurt? Our first instinct is sometimes to lash out or to react. But how does God respond when we act hurtfully toward him? Remarkably, by reaching out. With the second part of the love sandwich. This is very unnatural to us sometimes, but it's part of who God is. It reminds me of a story I read, uh, and I've uh, referenced this book before. I really like it. It's uh, from the Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. This is a story he tells, quote, over a hundred years ago, in the Deep South, a phrase so common in our Christian culture today, born again, was seldom or never used. Rather, the phrase used to describe the breakthrough into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ was, I was seized by the power of a great affection. These words described both the initiative of God and the explosion within the heart when Jesus, instead of being a face on a holy card with long hair and a robe with many folds, became alive, real, and Lord of one's personal and professional life. Seized by the power of a great affection was a visceral description of the phenomenon of Pentecost, authentic conversion, and the release of the Holy Spirit. The phrase lent new meaning to the old Russian proverb, those who have the disease called Jesus will never be cured. In March 1986, I was privileged to spend an afternoon with an Amish family in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I have long cherished a deep respect and admiration for the Amish community. We each have a dream, a vision of life that corresponds to our convictions, embodies our uniqueness, and expresses what is life-giving within us. Whether altruistic or ignoble, the dream gives definition to our lives, influences the decisions we make, and the steps we take, and the words we speak. Daily, we make choices that are either consistent with or contrary with our vision. A life of integrity is born of fidelity to the dream. As a community, the Amish, at great personal cost, have carved out a lifestyle that gives flesh and bones to their dream. Jonas Zook is an 82-year-old widower. He and his children raise piglets for their livelihood. The oldest, Barbara, 57, manages the household. The three younger children, Rachel, 53, Elam, 47, and Sam, 45, are, all have Down syndrome. When I arrived at noon with two friends, little Elam, about four feet tall, heavy set, thickly bearded, and wearing the black Amish outfit with the circular hat, was coming out of the barn some 50 yards away, pitchfork in hand. He had never laid, laid eyes on me in his life, yet when he saw me step out of the car, this man dropped the pitchfork and ran lickety-split in my direction. From two feet away, he flung himself at me, wrapped his arms around my neck, his legs around my waist, and kissed me. 
Well, I was temporarily stunned and terribly self-conscious, but in the twinkle of an eye, Jesus set me free from propriety. Then he jumped down, wrapped both his arms around my right arm, and led me on, the tour, uh, on a tour of the farm. A half hour later, Elam sat next to me at lunch. Midway through the meal, I turned around to say something. Inadvertently, my right elbow slammed into Elam's ribcage. He didn't wince. He didn't groan. He wept like a two-year-old child. His next move undid me. Alan came over to my chair, planted himself on my lap, and kissed me even harder. He kissed my eyes, nose, forehead, and cheeks. And there was Brennan, dazed, dumbstruck, weeping, and suddenly seized by the power of a great affection. In his utter simplicity, little Alam Zouk was an icon of Jesus Christ. Why? Because at that moment, his love for me did not stem from any attractiveness or lovability of mine. It was not conditioned by any response on my part. Alam loved me whether I was kind or unkind, pleasant or nasty. His love arose from a source outside of himself and myself. As often happens in a profound moment like that, I will recall a line from a book I had read er years earlier. Discussing the tragic history of Native Americans, the author noted that the Iroquois attributed divinity to children with Down syndrome, gave them an honored place in the tribe, and treated them as gods. In their unself-conscious freedom, they were a transparent window into the Great Spirit, into the heart of Jesus Christ, who loves us as we are and not as we should be. In the state of grace or disgrace, beyond caution, boundary, regret, or breaking point, unquote. God responds to our unkindness with kindness. God forgives when we might hold a grudge. God gives rain for the harvest, for the good and wicked alike. And we were made in his image. We're conformed to his image every day. So we should be moving toward a response like this, right? God does not treat us as our sins deserve, and he doesn't view us according to our sins. We also know this because there is a description of Hashem in this week's Parsha. It's the first description of God in the Torah. And according to Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, and I believe this is true, it's the most quoted uh, passage of the Hebrew Bible within the Hebrew Bible, right? This is the, the, the most popular hyperlink, if I can, if I can use that um, description again. This description of God is repeated over and over in uh, the Older Testament, and it appears also in the Newer Testament as well. In the liturgy of our people, uh, this description of God is used during the holiest time of the year, the high holidays and leading up to Yom Kippur, we recite these 13 attributes of God quite often. And importantly, this reassurance comes when? When does it come in the story? It comes after the golden calf, right? Moses pleads with God on behalf of the Israelites. He asks for mercy. He asks for Hashem himself to go with them, as we read in, uh, we read from the Bema a few moments ago, for his glorious presence to go before them. Then Moses asks to behold the glory of God, and God passes by him. And this is what we find in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Let's read it together if we can. Then Adonai passed before him and proclaimed, Adonai, Adonai, 
the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, showing mercy to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means leaving the guilty unpunished, but bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Sometimes we focus on the last part of this, um, but I will tell you that often when this is quoted within the Hebrew Bible, it's just the first part, right? And uh, that's because the emphasis is on the kindness of God that God is slow to anger, that his grace outweighs his judgment, right? You're comparing three to four generations with a thousand generations. There's really no comparison. God does judge us, right? We know that. He does require of us upright moral behavior. He does want us to do good, to do what is right. But the balance of grace does not compare to his judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? And he wants us to see ourselves this way, and he wants us to see others this way. He wants us to extend this kind of grace to others. The scriptures surrounding this week's Parsha are composed in this way. It's a giant sandwich. Number one, plans for God to dwell among Israel. Number two, golden calf. Number three, God directs Moses and Israel to actually follow those plans and get to building. And this beautiful description of the compassionate God that we just read. God's response to our golden calves, to our failures, is to do what? To draw near. It's amazing. This sandwich invites us to reframe our mistakes in light of his continued pursuit of us in light of our irrevocable calling and value, and in light of his unimaginable love and grace. Remember the picture of the wedding between Israel and God with the Torah as the ketubah or wedding document? There's another way to frame uh, this story when Moses uh, destroys the, uh, the tablets. Have you ever uh, have you ever thought about that? So um, in this week's Parsha, there's a, a, a midrash uh, that sheds light on what may be going on here, more than mere frustration. We just think of him as like, oh, I can't believe these people, I'm gonna throw this, throw these tablets down, you know, get rid of this, uh, this covenant, right? Um, but uh, this is what the Midrash says. When the Israelites committed the sin of the golden calf, God sat in judgment to condemn them. As Deuteronomy 9.14 says, let me alone that I may destroy them. But God had not yet condemned them. So Moses took the tablets from God to appease God's wrath. The Midrash compared the act of Moses to that of the king's marriage broker. The king sent the broker to secure a wife for the king, but while the broker was on the road, the woman corrupted herself with another man. The broker, who was entirely innocent, took the marriage document that the king had given the broker to seal the marriage and tore it, reasoning that it would be better for the woman to be judged as an unmarried woman than as a wife. And that's from Exodus Rabbah. Um, so in other words, we can view Moses' destroying the tablets in a different way. Like he's tearing up the marriage document, he's tearing up the 
ketubah, but it's an act of mercy, right? Moses is interceding so that Israel can be judged less harshly, and we know that that's God's purpose. He doesn't want to judge them harshly. He wants to have compassion on them, and uh, this is what uh, this is what we can do. We can refrain, reframe even our worst mistakes in light of the love of God. That is what the scriptures do. That is what Yeshua the Messiah mediates for us. He mediates forgiveness and compassion. And uh, that is what we can do. We and the Israelites are not defined by our mistakes. How are we defined? We're defined by God's faithfulness to us, right? He's called the God of Jacob the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, right? Well, Jacob, he wasn't a great guy, right? But it's not about Jacob. It's about how faithful God is to the Jacobs of this world, to us, right? That's what it's about. We are given a sandwich of the mobile presence of God around the golden calf story. Like the gold earrings, our weaknesses and mistakes are really opportunities for redemption, learning, and growth. In the Lord, in Messiah, we can turn it around. We can turn it around. Why not see this the way God does? We can extend this grace not only to our own stories when we're thinking about our narrative, but to others and their stories. If God's response to our mistakes is to draw near, then shouldn't we imitate him? Let's be sandwich makers for others. After all, we're made in his image. And let's be honest, who doesn't like a nice sandwich? Let's pray. Abba, we thank you for your compassion on us, that you don't see us or treat us as our sins deserve, um, but you see us with compassion uh, a thousandfold more than your judgment. And uh, you give us, you mediate blessing and forgiveness and healing through Yeshua the Messiah. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that we're made in your image. Help us to see ourselves this way, to see our own stories, to reframe our mistakes and uh, the, the things that we've done in light of your love for us to enjoy the sandwiches that you give us, to acknowledge that you reach out when we, when we mess up and uh, you pick us up. And you said a righteous person falls down seven times and gets up again every time. We thank you, Lord, that in you, you give us chance after chance to come back to you um, because it's your kindness that leads to repentance. And help us, Lord, to extend this grace to others, to not be judgmental when we see someone else that's, that, that may be stumbling, but to, to, be, to really be your face, Lord, to, to those that are hurting. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.